Well, it's good to see everybody. Happy Mother's Day to all the moms. We're going to turn our Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. While you're turning there, we have uh, three more weeks left in this um, series, for lack of a better word. And for some of you, I hope you're not like, man, let's get this thing over with. But we're going to go to Genesis 2, the beginning of the Bible this week. And then the next two weeks, we're going to be at the end of the Bible in Genesis, or Revelation 18 and 19, and then the following uh, time, Revelation 21 and 22. We're going to end with the city of God uh, coming from heaven down to earth. So as we've been in this series, hopefully we all can just see how the Bible teaches us that God is building a city. He's a city builder. And that he's doing this through a collision of the gospel and Pentecost, his word and his spirit. And when this collision occurs, a new community is formed. And we are, as Jesus said, a city set on a hill. We are a city that stands out to the world because God is here. Because living water has flowed into this city. And also, like that river that we looked at last week, this river doesn't just flow within us, but the river also, it flows out and it flows into the world. We flow the life of God, we flow the kingdom of God, we flow the spirit of God into a world that's dying of thirst. And so this is why we are here. And I don't care if I sound like a broken record right now. But we are here to seek the full shalom of Grand Rapids. Meaning, we are not here for ourselves. We are not here to build a great church. We are here for Grand Rapids. To flow into this city to move in as far as we can, to be shalom to people in chaos. So I think it should cause us to ask these kind of questions. Are we flowing in? Are you flowing in? And what kind of water are you offering? Is it dead water or is it living water? And if we really are a city on a hill, I think this is the big question, how are we different? How is it right now that this community stands out as freaks to our world? You know, there are, there are several areas that I think of where, where Christians ought to stand out. And, of course, Jesus touches on all these, I think, when he says you are to be a city set on a hill. Um, areas where we ought to be standing out is in the area of marriage. We ought to be standing out in our treatment of sex. We ought to be standing out in the way we handle and treat and value money. We ought to be standing out in the way that we value and treat people. And I thought, wow, that would make for a fun thing to teach about on, on Sunday morning. But I just told you, we're only going three more weeks. So then, about a month ago, 
God just started to place one of these things on my heart. And I kind of tried to push it to the side, but it kept coming up. It kept coming up. It got bigger and bigger in my heart. And really, frankly, I don't know why it's big on my heart this morning. I don't have anyone or anything in mind. But God has put it on my heart to talk about marriage this morning. Because marriage, like money and sex and power, has been humiliated today in our world. To the point where it bears no resemblance to what God lays out in his word. And as a result, marriage has become a joke. If you don't know this, spend some time with some young people, college students, 20-somethings, and ask them what they think about marriage. And so today, this, this sermon is, is not just for people who are married, it's for people who are not married. And if God has placed a call in your life to be single, then I just want you today to listen and to just pray. Pray either for your parents' marriage or for your friend's marriage or whoever God puts on your heart. But to anyone who's unmarried and thinks they're going to get married, I can't think of a more important sermon I could give to you than this one right here. And I'm going to sound a warning right now. God's word is deeply subversive on this manner. In fact, I think it's so subversive that if we came away this morning really knowing and understanding, and if we really lived out what God's word had to say about marriage, we would look like what I said earlier. We'd look like freaks. Our world wouldn't know what to do with us. So let's uh, turn in our Bibles to Genesis 2. I've already told you to do that. <laughs> let's start with verses 18. We're going to read to the end, and let's stand for the reading of God's word. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field, all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. And so the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam... No suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs, closed up the place with flesh. And then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, wow, <laughs> come on. Actually, this is the first poem probably ever uttered, certainly in the Bible. And that's what man draws out in woman, a romantic, or so they wish. <laughs> this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For 
this reason. A man will leave his father and mother and be united, or as some of your translations say, cleave to his wife, and they will become one, one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. This is God's word. You can be seated. As I tell people when I do premarital counseling, every thing we need to know about marriage is right in these verses. And I want to just kind of lay out what's going on, um, and then we'll dive into the meaning. But in verse 18, God says something that should be almost shocking. Because as he has created the world, after each day, he ends it by saying, it was good, it was good, it was good. And then the last day, he says, and it was very good. But now God is looking over everything he has made, and he realizes that there's one thing yet that is not good. And I want us to know that Adam's not the one that came to this realization. This is God's conclusion. And so in verses 19 and 20, all of a sudden you see this sudden switch where Adam goes from being alone to now he's naming all the animals. And what's going on here is God now is showing to Adam his need. And God does this by bringing the animals to him. So you got to just kind of picture this. Here they come. Here comes the he lion and the she lion, and the he horse and the she horse, and the he dog and the she dog. And this goes on and on and on until all of a sudden Adam says, hey, wait a second, where's my she? And so through this, Adam realizes himself that something is lacking. And then in verses 21 and 22, it says God creates woman. And I want to say something about that. I think you can make a biblical argument. Well, we know this is God's final act of creation. But I think we can also add to this, it's his crowning act of creation. And I can't believe I only got a hiccup. (laughs) I mean, can I at least get an amen from the ladies? And how about the guys? So then what follows is the first wedding ceremony. God is ushering Eve down the aisle. And trust me on this. Adam is beyond ecstatic (laughs) because Eve is perfect to him in every way. And then verse 24 says, for this reason, meaning here's the logic, here's God's logic for marriage. Marriage is not just an accident. Marriage did not just evolve. Marriage is not a human invention. Marriage is God's idea. And because of this, 
marriage has a power. We've said the same thing about city. City is God's idea. God invented the concept of city, and because of that, cities have power. As our city goes, so goes our culture, so goes our world. Marriage also has power. As a marriage goes, so goes one's life. And I can speak from my own personal experience that everything in my life can be going great. But if my marriage is weak, I will step out into my world in weakness. And on the flip side, everything in my life can be weak and, and, and falling apart, but if, if my marriage is strong, I will step out in my world in strength. Why? Because God made marriage and it has power. And God has massive purpose for marriage. And it really begins, it centers on what we read in 24. For this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and be united or cleave to his wife, and they will become one. That's God's purpose for marriage. And we've just learned this, that oneness is the essence of who God is. God is a trinity. God is a community of per persons. And so perfect is the relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that we say three persons, yet one God. And we've learned that this is the whole reason for why God made the world, why God made us in his image. It's to invite us into his oneness, to share that with us. To experience this all-satisfying joy of the community, of the Trinity. This is why God made us, and this is why God goes to such great lengths to redeem us, to get us back in. So you need to see what God is providing Adam. Adam, you see this union that you get to share with us. I now want to give you a flesh-on-flesh, flesh, a heart-on-heart, heart, a life-on-life life union that reflects this union that you have with us and the union that, that we have with one another. That's why Adam says, flesh of my flesh. You gave me this, God, and now you're giving me this here in the confines of marriage. And that's why God says the purpose of marriage is so that they may become one as we are one. So this oneness, we need to understand, it's more than just a fleshly oneness. It's more than a sexual oneness. It's a total life union of shared values, shared beliefs, shared dreams, a shared life mission. This is why marriage can never be about me. It's no longer I, I, I. Autonomy is just, it's thrown right out the window. In fact, the moment you marry, you no longer even own your own body anymore. But marriage is a we. Let us exalt his name together. Let us do life together. Let us 
have a family. Let us. It's a we. In fact, I think it's cool that several places in the Old Testament, the marriage partner is referred to as a halup. <laughs> and halup is the Hebrew word that describes what we are to God, that we are a covenant partner, a true friend of the living God. That's what we are. And this is what we are to be to our spouse, a covenant par- partner, a deep friend. That's why my, my definition of marriage is simply this. It's two best friends doing life together till death do them part. And then verse 25 gives us the, the outcome or the result of this oneness. It says, the man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. And so this becomes a place for a man and a woman to be naked and to feel no shame. Now I was thinking about this. To our world, nakedness is really a matter of, of, of eroticism. But for the Christian, nakedness is a symbol of being humble before the creator. Of being completely found out. Of being completely known by him. And yet completely loved and accepted by him. In spite of him knowing us completely. And I said this a couple of weeks ago. Isn't this what every human heart longs for? A place where we can be completely known and understood and still be loved and accepted where we no longer have to hide, where we no longer have to play a game, where we can come out with our fears and our insecurities and our vulnerabilities and still know that this person loves me and accepts me. Because isn't this exactly what all of us get to experience with God because of the gospel? I mean, that's the joy that causes us to sing, isn't it? We're not singing because that's what we do in church. We sing because in spite of who we are or what we are or what we have done, we can claim Christ. And as we claim Christ and surrender our life to Christ, we're hidden in Christ and we're clothed in his righteousness. So we don't have to stand with our head down and full of shame, but we can stand with heads lifted up in the dance of the community of the Trinity. And there's only one reason why we can experience this oneness. Because of a covenant. It's knowing that no matter what I expose, no matter what I lay bare, that this person always promises to be there till death do we part. In fact, that word, to be united, and some of your Bibles translate it um, to cleave, means literally to make a covenant, a public vow. And this is exactly what binds Libby and me together. It's not a good sex life. It's not good romance. We have good seasons, we have bad seasons. It's 
it's not our emotions or our feelings, because emotions and feelings are fickle. It's our promise to one another that no matter what, I'm going to be there for you. I'm staying with you. And so it's this covenant, this promise that makes marriage, I think, the safest human relationship place in the world. And this is God's order. God's order for marriage is covenant and friendship. Covenant and friendship are always first. So when we look at our world, this is where we look like freaks. Because for our world, the starting point for the marriage relationship is sex and romance. Ladies exchange sex for romance. Guys exchange romance for sex. And so many people believe the lie that commitment and friendship will flow out of sex and romance. And I just say, you got to be kidding me. This isn't the biblical order. And I think the scars and wounds are proof to this. God designed sex and romance to be the fruit that flows out of relationship based on a covenant. The biblical order is covenant and friendship. And so that applies to us even who are married, doesn't it? What are we going for? What is it that we evaluate our marriage Is it God's order or is it our order? And then for anyone who's unmarried, why are you looking first for a sexual partner? Or why are you looking for a character out of a romance novel? You know what you need to be looking for according to God's order is a true friend. I think this is one of my better moments in my life and relationship with Libby. And you guys know I don't do this that often, right? I mean, you guys hear a lot of my not-so-good moments, but can I share one of my better moments or not? (laughs) It was our third date. In fact, I see uh, Libby's parents back there, so this might even be news to you guys. (laughs) Yeah. I think I'm going to have to spin this thing a little bit, right? (laughs) But, you know, I'm a second semester senior at college and you go to a Christian college to find your wife, right? Totally kidding. (laughs) (laughs) But actually, I was just sick of how I was in relationships. Not that I was just like this horrible worldly guy, but I probably had the world's order in my mind. But by the time I, I got to Libby, God said to me, wake up, go my way. And it was our third date. We were at a restaurant, just talking. And I said, that's it. I took the food, I just pushed it to the side. I said, I don't know where this thing's going. But this is what I do know. I want to commit myself to you. And I want to let God do something whatever he wants to do in light of the fact of this commitment that I'm going to make to you. Do it, guys. 
Second purpose for marriage. For me to be happy. I'm kidding. (laughs) (laughs) To unleash the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God, of course, is, is God's rule that breaks in, bringing shalom to chaos. In fact, Jesus lays out this logic. This is his logic. And in Matthew 19, he connects Genesis 2.24, this idea that uh, marriage is for oneness, with Genesis 1.27.28, which we call the creation mandate, which is God's mandate to Adam and Eve to unleash the kingdom of God in the world, to bring everything in all creation under the rule of God. And so marriage, according to Jesus, is one of the primary ways of unleashing the kingdom of God, of bringing God's rule into our world, bringing his shalom to chaos. Now just think about this. How did Jesus unleash the kingdom of God? He found some some people, some disciples. He poured into them. He sent them out. How did he send the 70 out? In twos. Okay? So, and you see that throughout the New Testament, Paul and Barnabas, uh, Paul and Silas. They went out as pairs. They went out as twos. Also add to this the New Testament concept of insula. Insula is simply the word for house or home. In fact, in the first two to three hundred years, where the church was just spreading throughout the Roman Empire like gangrene, there are no church buildings. There are no temples. There are no synagogues. There are no gyms. It went from house to house to house to house. And I said this before about Alexander the Great, who I think was the world's greatest missionary prior to the Apostle Paul, not missionary for the gospel, but a missionary for the worldview of Hellenism. And the reason why he was so effective in conforming the world to Hellenism is because he built cities. And he'd build cities, and then he would fill those cities with the um, worldview of Hellenism so that Hellenism would spread. They were outposts that were placed all over his empire to spread the gospel of Hellenism. Husband and wife, you are to be a team, and your home is to be an outpost for the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, I would say this. Your home is more church than this is church. And you're going to keep coming to church to find out that this is less church than your home. And so I ask this question, are you a team of two with a shared vision of unleashing the kingdom of God? Are you dreaming together? Are you ministering together? And how is it that you're using your home And do you know that in your home, in that church, you are prophet, and you are priest, and you are pastor? 
And that in many ways, you're more those things than I am those things to you. And that the best thing I can do as a pastor is to tell you, no, you guys are the pastors. In your outpost, read Deuteronomy 6. It's not my job. It's not the school's job. It's not Derek's job. It's your job. Are you doing it? I send my kids out every day with a bunch, to a bunch of pagans. I'm not going to send them out without those guys going out with a mission, burning in their hearts. They're going to get prayed over, they're going to get blessed, and they're going to be told why they're going to school today. And it's not to get good grades, it's not to be the star jock, it's to be a, a missionary at their school. And see, I, I, I addressed this a little bit last week. What the early church did is they found the deficiencies in the Roman culture. And they exploited these deficiencies for the sake of the gospel. In one of those areas, you remember what it was. I really, I, I really want us to have this in our mind because I, I think that this is absolutely brilliant. They, the, the, the early church wasn't thinking to themselves, all right, how can we get ourselves in places of power? How can we get in the Roman Senate? How can we get an ear with Caesar? How can we um, get in the army? What they did instead is they went to the places where the Roman Empire was broken. So they went to the garbage dumps where all the unwanted babies were, were thrown out. That's where they went. That's where they flowed. And they, they moved into that deficiency and they exploited it. And they won that area over for Christ. And over time, as they went to the cracks and the deficiencies, the gospel just, it won the whole thing. And what are we doing as husband and wife, as outposts? How are we moving to the deficiencies that exist in our world today? The places where the thing's broken. And I could list all kinds of areas, but I don't want to. I want you as your own outpost to think about how can we do that. But I'll give you a for instance. Do you realize that the suicide rate right now is 450% higher today amongst youth than it was 50 years ago? There's something broken. There's a deficiency. Or do you know right now that there are 40 million unwanted kids who don't have a home? See, and if we as families, husband and wife teams, as outposts, would start spending as much time to thinking about how to move into the areas of deficiency in our culture as we do about how can my kid be an A student to get into the great college or be a great athlete. I know you're like, you sound like a freak. Yeah. They were freaks. You need to know that. They, they, they were freaks. Raising Jesus freaks. Not just going the world's way. 
Number three, and this is kind of in line with number two, and it is my last point if you're watching the clock. God's purpose for marriage, marriage preaches the gospel. I mean, I love Paul in Ephesians chapter 5 when he's talking about marriage. He all of a sudden finds himself so lost in, in talking about the gospel that he almost has to catch himself and say, wait, wait, wait a second, what I'm really talking about here is not just Christ's love for his bride, but a husband's love for his bride. I'm talking about marriage. Because you can't talk about marriage without talking about the gospel. My marriage should be a passion play that occurs every day in our house. My kids ought to know a lot about the relationship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as they watch me relate to Libby. My marriage should also be a passion play that occurs every day in my neighborhood or wherever I do life or in this community. And that doesn't mean that my marriage is perfect and I I mean, I would sound like a fool if I even tried to insinuate that because you see it. There is no marriage that's perfect. But every marriage has the capacity to preach the gospel to the world. It preaches the gospel as Libby submits to me. I'm serious. You're like, what? He just said that. <laughs> like I said, a four-letter word. Because honestly, that's what it's become. And I do this when I do weddings. I do Ephesians 5, and weddings today now are, are, are more than just um, me up here and then bride and groom. But more people now want the bride and groom to face that way, so sometimes I'm just down here. I got my back, and I'm reading Ephesians 5, and I'm just like, I'm right a duck. I can just feel someone's going to maybe throw a Bible at me and hit me. <laughs> but let me just stay here a little bit. Submission is not a bad word. It can't be a bad word when it's God's word. And are we going to just take this word now and, and, and throw it out because our culture doesn't like it? In fact, I think if there's one word that describes Jesus, his life on earth, his relationship to the Father, it's submission. And submission doesn't mean, I need to clarify this, it doesn't mean that the wife is in any way less than the husband. I've been married for 17 years. I'm going to call a spade a spade. If there is a master race in this world, it is this thing called woman. Seriously. I mean, women are amazing, gifted, brilliant, multitask, <laughs> tough, strong. Keep going, guys. What else? <laughs> but marriage, of all the places in the world, should be the place where a woman and all that God made her to be should come to complete fruition. Her mind, her heart, her soul, her gifts, her walk with the Lord. But here's what submission means biblically. That when a woman gets married, 
She's making a choice to lay her life, her dreams, and her will at the feet of her husband. And when a wife does this, when she lays her life, when she lays her gifts, when she lays her dreams at her husband's feet, do you know what a watching world gets to see? Jesus. Jesus, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be hung on to, but rather Jesus, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in the appearances of man. He humbled himself, and he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. (sighs) Preach the gospel, wives. My marriage preaches the gospel when I love Libby just as Jesus loved his bride, the church. And I'm going to tell you right now, those words, just as, they scare me to death. Because biblical love is not defined by an emotion or feelings, but biblical love is an action. And at the heart of it is Jesus saying, greater love has no man than this, that he do what? He lay his life down. And so this laying my life down for Libby, what this looks like in the practical day-to-day, it means every day I am to delight in Libby in the same way Jesus delights in me. It means that every day I'm to pursue Libby in the same way Jesus pursues me. It means that I'm to protect and provide for Libby in the same way that Jesus protects and provides for me. It means every day I'm to fight for Libby in the same way Jesus fights for me. It means I'm to be her champion and her hero in the same way Jesus is my champion and my hero. This is how we love, guys. And then this just as, it doesn't stop there because if you look at Ephesians 5, Um, there's this thing that's almost hidden in the text where Paul gets lost in the gospel and he says, someday Jesus is going to present his bride to the Father without stain, blemish, or defect. So you know what that means? I mean, this is an awesome thought, isn't it? For any of us who know Christ, who know our sin, who know our stains, who know our defects, that someday we stand before the Father with confidence because of what Christ has done. But if we are to love our wives as Christ loved his bride, I believe with all my heart, someday I'm going to have to present Libby to Jesus without stain, blemish, or defect. Again, again, how will the world know? How will my kids know? How will my neighbors know? How will my coworkers know that God is for real? Father, that they are one, as you and I are one, that they would love each other as I love you and you love me. That is our proof to the world that God is real. So marriage is this profound picture to the world of this union that we share with God. 
In fact, I think this is why marriage is at the beginning of the story because marriage is a picture of the perfection in the Garden of Eden. But this marriage only points to the ultimate marriage at the end of the story, the wedding feast of the Lamb, which is our ultimate, our ultimate marriage to Christ. And this union with Jesus, it's everything. And it's not only then, but it's right now. And because marriage then is this picture of our marriage, our union with Christ, it just puts human marriage in its place. Number one, no one here needs to feel like they have to get married. No one needs to feel like they're second-class citizens if they don't get married. Paul even says it. He says, listen, it's better that you not get married. Why? Because people who are called to not get married have a greater capacity for the gospel. So no one here should feel like they, they have to get married. Union and marriage with Christ is everything. But here's what it also means, number two, that if we're married or when we do get married, marriage is not for me. It's not for my happiness. In fact, God gave the universe marriage for the same reason that he made the universe. It's for his glory. It's to tell the world, to tell our children, to tell our neighbors, neighbors about God and what God is like. It's to give our world this, this flesh and blood picture of the joys of the dance. And some of you right now are thinking right now, wow, my marriage is so far from this. And the question really becomes, how do we do this? I could throw out 101 prescriptions right now. I could say you need to do this, you need to do this. And you know what, though? All of that's just kind of done in the, in the flesh through our willpower. I don't think anyone needs prescriptions this morning. I think what everyone needs this morning is the power. And, and the power is in the gospel. Because what's at the heart of the gospel? What you have at the heart of the gospel is not a God who's sitting here saying to us, your life for me, but you have a God saying to the gospel, my life for you. And this is the power that makes us one. This is where we get the power to make a promise and to keep a promise. I mean, our whole salvation is based on a promise. God came to Abraham. God made a promise to Abraham. Abraham, I promise to bless you. I promise to do all these things. And Abraham said exactly what I would have said. I would have said, well, how do I know that this promise is for real? How do I know that you're going to keep this promise? So God said to him, he said, you know what, Abraham? Go out and cut some animals in pieces. God appears and went through the pieces. Because that's how they made covenants in that day. Deals were literally cut in blood. Because what you said when you cut those animals in pieces were this. If I don't do everything I said I would do, may I be cut to pieces just like these animals. So God goes between the pieces, not just once, 
to say, may my life and blood be on this, but twice to say, not only if I fail, uh, Abraham, but also if you fail, it's on me. And here's the deal. I will fail. You will fail. And there are going to be times when we're going to fail miserably. And sometimes it would be a lot easier to just throw in the towel or to never try. But 2,000 years after God walked through the pieces, his son hung on a Roman cross. And with blood dripping down his head, his heart, his hands, and his side, God is saying to the world, I kept my promise. I love what Charles Spurgeon says. He says, when you look at the cross, this greatest act of love in the world, he says, Jesus, he just, he just stayed. And there he is, he's looking down on, on people who are deserting him and mocking him and denying him. And yet in the greatest act of love the world has ever known, Jesus, he just stayed there just stayed. And if this burns in your heart, you'll have the power to stay even in the worst of failures. Because in my worst of failures, Jesus stayed with me. And he not only stayed, he gave it all, he forgave it all, giving me the power to give all and to forgive all to my wife. That's the power. Do you have it? Do you know it? Let's pray. God, you just so blessed the world when you gave us marriage. And God, I I just pray this morning, whether we're married or whether we're not married, that we would go your way. That we would do marriage your way. Because so much is at stake The gospel is at stake. The kingdom of God is at stake. Your reputation is at stake. All that you are is at stake. Our children are at stake. stake. Our neighbors, a watching world, Jesus, help us to go your way. May your gospel burn in our hearts today. May you open the eyes of our heart to see you. Have our hearts changed.